As we continue our worship, let's turn together to John chapter 16. The Gospel of John chapter 16. And we'll be reading this morning and studying together verses 16 to 24. John 16, 16 to 24. We'll read the text in a moment. As you're making your way there, I want to just tell you about a little scene I was reminded of this week in C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters. Brief introduction for those of you who aren't familiar. It's this rather ironic book in which the author tries to teach us about good uh, through the lens of evil. It's this conversation between this elder demon, Screwtape, and his nephew, Wormwood. And the uncle is trying to give the younger demon advice on how to tempt a Christian. And as you get this supposed inside ear, you're getting insight into maybe the way that Satan could be working among us. It is totally fictional, but it's absolutely fantastic to be able to think about it from such a different point of view. There's a particular section, though, that has always captured my attention. The younger demon, uh, Wormwood, is actually trying to, um, to see this young man who's supposedly come to Christ, like, walk away from him, and he thinks that he has a unique advantage. He thinks that he has found the thing that will lead this guy ultimately away from God altogether. And you know what it is? You know what he thinks that he stumbled upon that's going to be so effective in sending him away from God? Laughter. The younger demon actually thinks that laughter is the unique territory of the satanic. And so he writes with excitement to his uncle, like, oh, he's with his friends and he's having a good time and I think we're going to see him at some point go away from God, or what they call the enemy. And a screw tape has to correct him. He says, this is actually not our territory, but his. He goes on to say that laughter of this kind, joy is another way that he calls it, of this kind is no good and should always be discouraged. Besides, the phenomenon of joy or happiness, laughter, is of itself disgusting and a direct insult to the realism, the dignity, and the austerity of hell. <laughs> the screw tape is angry that this young tipter would make such a mistake as to think that joy and pleasure would be the way to lead someone away from God. He ultimately will correct him and say, keep him away from joy and pleasure because that's ultimately what could lead someone closer to God. And for many of us, it seems that we've bought into the lie of the younger nephew. I think that we sometimes also think that smiles and fun, and pleasure, and joy, somehow in some way might be problematic to our Christian walk. Like, isn't it about bearing a cross? Isn't it about the austerity and severity of trying to follow God and His laws? Aren't, aren't Christian people those people who have given up worldly amusements and pleasures and have found a more serious way of life? If, if for us, many of us in this room, I think, would even say, you know, at the core of our Christian faith is not emotion or joy or affection, but at the, its core, what it really is all about is information. Some of us think that at the center of our faith are things like doctrine and confession and creed and orthodoxy and discernment and truth. Like, that's what we really got to have. The rest of it's all kind of optional. 
just so you know, if you're feeling uncomfortable, I trend this, toward this category. There's another group of people in here who would say, you know what's at the, really, at the center of our Christian faith? It isn't doctrine, it isn't truth as much as it is duty. We need to just get practical. We need to do good. It's all about the action, the covenant, the conduct, purity, love, good work, societal impact. We were just talking about it earlier. Missions. We got to get moving. Like at the center of our faith is action. So for some it's information, for some it's action. And I think that both the action-oriented people and the information-oriented people could be in agreement about suspicion toward what I would call the third group of people, affection. There are actually some people out there that we know who put like at the heart of their Christian faith, the heart. And it seems weird to us. We talk about people who seem a little too happy, who seem a little too joyful, a little too exuberant. We say they're charismatic, or maybe they're part of uh, the prosperity gospel, or they're shallow, or they're trite, or uh, their faith is circumstantial. We know that either our faith is informational, or we know it's missional and actional, but affectionate, I don't really think so. And yet we are going to see in our text that while Jesus will acknowledge temporary sorrow, he sets the expectation for forever joy. He'll acknowledge sorrow, but he sets the expectation, listen, for all who follow him to experience joy. Let's look at the text together, beginning in verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, A little while, and you will not see me, and again, a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. This text is about setting an expectation of joy for those who follow Jesus. It particularly gives us two joys, two joys. Disclose them for you ahead of time. We'll study them in detail in the moments to come. The first joy is the joy of the new age. The new age. Jesus will describe a new age, a new era, a new time. No longer like the pains of labor, but life having arrived in the world. The new age. That's the first joy. The second is answered prayer. Sorry, guys. It's not alliterated. I tried. Couldn't do it. But it's this simple, right? New Age Answered Prayer, Two Joys. Now, there's a little bit of a setup, though, before we get there. Notice over and over again, we keep seeing the term, a little while, a little while, a little while, a little while. 
And it is rather confusing. Jesus just kind of makes this opaque statement, like right after he was discussing the Holy Spirit and how he's going to benefit them and their ministries, he all of a sudden switches subjects and says to them, hey, I'm going to be with you a little while. No, excuse me. I'm going to, in a little while, I'm going to be gone. And then a little while after that, I'm going to be back. Period. That's it. That's all he says. And the guys, rightly, are confused. They're like, what is he talking about? The text goes into great detail to to show us how confused they were by this statement. Now, I I want you to, to follow something here. When you are reading through John 14 to, to 16, you're seeing Jesus talk over and over again about leaving, going away, coming back. You even know that in your Bibles, like in the little thing that titles the paragraph or study Bible, this is known as the farewell discourse. The farewell discourse, the bye, the see you later, the I'm out of here, the sayonara discourse. I mean, you get what I'm saying? Like, we already know ahead of time, like, that this is about Jesus going away, and we know what happens in the chapters after this when he does go away. He goes away in death, he comes back in resurrection, and then he's going to go away again in the ascension and come back sometime yet disclosed to come again. We get that, but I don't think you understand that that in their first century faithful Jewish minds, they're having a hard time understanding that the Messiah would come into the world and leave again and come back. Like, it doesn't make sense to them. Like, if you're going to come, Jesus, and you're the Messiah, you're the king, you're the prophet, you're the priest, you're here, why would you leave? So, Jesus is having to do a lot of teaching to prepare them for something that they have not yet experienced and can't really fathom. So though we should know from John 14, 15, and 16, where Jesus says, I'm going to the Father, I'm going to the Father, I'm going to the Father, we should know that he's going away. What he means by a little while I'll be gone, and then a little while after that I'll be back. They don't know. In fact, they're talking about it with one another. It's kind of like, you know, you, if you've ever been in a class and like, you think that everybody else may be getting, you know, what the teacher's saying. You don't want to be the person to raise your hand uh, and betray your ignorance. Like, they're kind of doing that. They're like whispering, hey, what does he mean by a little while? And Jesus can hear them whispering this to one another. And it says in the text that he knew that they wanted to ask him. So he just comes out and says, hey, I think you guys want to ask me a question. You want to ask what I mean by a little while I'm going to be gone, and then a little while after that I'm coming back. He says, let me tell you what I mean by that. And this is a sensitive leader. He's attuned to their emotions. His answer comes in verse 20. He gives that that rabbinically authoritative pronouncement. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Now, if you're reading this, even in our own day, it could be confusing for you, like, hey, what is this talking about? Is this talking about Jesus, like, leaving in his ascension and then coming back at his second return? That's actually not what this is talking about. What Jesus is talking about is the fact that he is about to go away in death. They're going to weep and mourn. That's what the text says, weep and mourn. Like, those are the terms that were used to describe those professional mourners that were prevalent in Jewish culture. Look it up on YouTube. It'll blow your mind. They, like, would actually hire people to weep and to wail and to holler at funerals. He's saying, like, there will be professional-level crying going on here. And at the same time, the world's going to rejoice. Who was rejoicing at Jesus' death? Well, there were at least two groups of people. One, the Romans, because they've eliminated a threat. And if that sounds weird or morbid to you, how did you feel when you found out Osama bin Laden had been killed? I saw some fist bumps and high fives. 
This was an enemy of the state that had been assassinated. The Romans were delighted, and let me tell you who else was, frankly, delighted. The Jewish rulers. Their opposition had been eliminated. Again, just think about what happens when your candidate wins on election day. You're rejoicing that the other guy got defeated. Like, they're rejoicing that their alternate candidate, if you will, has been defeated. He's been eliminated. There would be great joy in that moment when Jesus would die by many. Glad that problem's out of the way. And his people are absolutely devastated. But he says, it'll only be a little while. And then you're going to see me again, and there's going to be great rejoicing. Like, they were so happy when they saw him again that they couldn't even believe it. It was too good to be true. You read the gospel accounts, and it says that they had great joy when they saw Jesus again. This is exactly what it is referring to. Their sorrow would turn into joy. Their distress and tribulation would be a time of great rejoicing. And so with that, Jesus unpacks that after his death and after his resurrection, he would be with them now in a special way, in a way that he's never been with them before, and this will make them happy. It will make them happy in two ways. The first one is because it's a new age, it's a new day. This brings us to that first point. Notice this analogy that he gives, that he opens with an illustration in verse 21. Look again in your Bibles. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now, um, I'm looking around about... 50% of you uh, will never be able to know this pain. (laughs) Uh, You do know that it is frequently associated with moaning and screaming and even in some cases cursing. The pains of childbirth are real. (laughs) They're not made up. In fact, I didn't even ask my wife. I didn't want her interpretation of the event uh, to color all. I just tried to say, I typed into Google, what does childbirth feel like for the guy that has no clue? (laughs) Again, for the people who don't know. It's like a cramp wrapping around your body from the back to the front, lasting a minute at a time. While feeling lightheaded, nauseous, having hot flashes and chills, and while feeling like you're being stabbed a million times with a dull knife from your butt to your stomach and feeling like your whole body is about to rip and explode, while feeling like you have a sledgehammer to your lower spine sustained for 30 seconds at a time. That's pretty terrible. (laughs) (laughs) And we even have medicine to help with that. In fact, I consider myself to be a rather tough individual. Like, I don't mind, like, watching war movies and seeing, you know, like, medical pictures of broken bones or whatever, and yet when my second child was born, I was in the delivery room, and it wasn't even labor. It was just the epidural, just the needle going into my wife's back, and I literally fainted into a chair. (laughs) I mean, just the medicine (laughs) produced a response in me. One lady said it, labor is like a series of bad surprise parties. (laughs) But at the end, it's the best surprise party ever. And that's the point that Jesus is making here. You can imagine just the acute pain and duress of a particular moment all of a sudden turning into the greatest joy of one's life. The greatest pain of their lives would be directly connected to the greatest pleasure. What seemed like death and anguish would turn into life and elation. And with that picture firmly in mind, now think of those disciples. Can you imagine how those men felt in those first three days? I mean, contrary to your well-informed understanding, they had little or no conception of such pain. They were thinking only party. 
If Jesus comes, if the Messiah comes, the party starts. That's why he keeps saying, like, why aren't you getting it? Why aren't you getting it? Do you remember that when he actually tells them one time about this, Peter takes them aside and corrects them and says, no, Lord, may it never be. This is not true. And Christ rebukes him as Satan. They knew the Messiah would come and rule, not go and die and come back to life again. He was trying to tell them they could not get it. They were devastated. So he applies this birth-life metaphor to them in verse 22. Look at it there. So also you have sorrow now. They're already sad because they think he's about to go, but they don't understand what it means. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice And no one will take your sorrow from you. I love that. Yeah, he's going to be dead and they will weep. I mean, you know what it's like to be probably at the bedside of a loved one and to already experience the sorrow of knowing that they're going away. And then the moment actually comes and those days are just numbing. The pain is so terrible. There's real sorrow that's there, but he interjects and says, but I will see you again. And that's going to cause an effect. When I'm with you, when I see you again, it will produce joy. It says, here's the effect, your hearts will rejoice. I want to point out a few things to you. I just think we should look at the words as they're there. The first is this. Jesus doesn't say, you will see me again. He says, I will see you again. I love how he switches that up. You would think that he would say, oh, well, you're going to see me again. Well, they did see him again, and that did produce joy. But his emphasis is not on them seeing him, but him seeing them This makes perfect sense in light of everything that he's been teaching up to this moment. Because he's been telling them, hey, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to send you my presence in the person of the Holy Spirit. He will be with you. And remember, he said twice so far in this discourse, it's even better that I go away and the Spirit is with you. The point is not us being able to see Jesus. The point is him being in connection with us. He sees us, and that will produce joy in our hearts. Even when we can't see him, he sees us. And then notice the promise. He says, when you know that I see you, that I'm not dead and gone forever, but that I'm actually with you. It says it will produce joy in your heart, not should should produce joy or may produce joy or might produce joy or could produce joy, but will produce joy in your heart. Let's get back to our opening argument. Yeah, there's information for sure. Like, there's doctrine. It is the difference between life or death. And there is action, not denying it. Like, like the difference between the devil's believing and people actually being converted is obedience. Like, it leads to action. But there must also be affection. There must also be real joy Otherwise, it is not real. I would question whether or not you've actually been seen by Jesus. He says, this will happen. And notice this, it is a joy that no one will take from you. No one. Friends, this is not just the temporary amusements of this world. I want to ask you a question to those of you who are, I don't care if you've been here first day or if you've been here for years, like this is a real question, please like introspect for a moment, do you know the joy of Jesus being with you, that deep inner joy that no one or nothing can take away from you? I joke around about it often, I just think it's really funny. 
that uh, this area is regularly called the happiest place in the world. And, and if you look on the surface, it, it, it seems it would be, right? A lot of health, a lot of wealth. It's a well-laid-out city. Got a beach four miles away. It's not bad. People flee from all over the country <laughs> to, to get to a place like this. I understand. And yet, that supposed happiness has such an expiration date on it, it's not even worth talking about. The stuff that people buy, it breaks, it fades, it goes out of style, it wears out. Your overfilled garages are testimonies to the transient nature of the joy that you thought you would get from the junk that you buy. In fact, instead of sorrow turning to joy, joy turns into inconvenience. Now it's like, what are we going to do with all this? Accomplishments even. Maybe some people just love climbing the ladder. They provide a thrill, but it only lasts a couple days. You conquer that mountain, and then it's like, all right, what's the next one? Even if you do accomplish something great, it soon is overshadowed by someone smarter, faster, richer, and better. Maybe you even post it on social media. You get hundreds of likes. But they fade up into the feed. Even substances and sensual experiences, they're very real for a moment. Let me be just really clear about that. Like You can do things to your body that will produce a dopamine response in the brain causing you to feel joy. And that feeling is very real. Whether it's drugs, alcohol, sex. I think sometimes uh, preachers do a disservice to the, the nature of temptation when they act like, well, it's not really that great. No, it will produce a response. But it lasts seconds, minutes, and then you have to deal with the next morning. The, the pain of the next morning and the regret for years to come. Some people even find joy in their families, and wow, what an awesome common grace that is. And yet... Families, they, they leave, they grow up, they move on. They either precede you in death or you precede them in death. Jesus here is talking about a joy that no one, that nothing can take away from you. Do you have that kind of a joy? And I know that there are objections, and I'll try to answer those in a moment, but let's just take the text at face value to begin with. Jesus is saying that if you are one of my followers, you will experience joy in knowing that I am present with you, even through the Spirit. I'm not dead anymore. I'm not dead and gone. I am alive and well and with you, and that should produce joy. A new age has dawned. I love the way uh, one author and commentator put it, he says that, that, that basically the resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits of new life. Paul even uses this argument. We know that new life has now burst into the scene. We were in a world where everything was dying, 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 and now finally death has been overcome by one who has defeated it. In my front yard right now, there are two struggling fig trees. The drought has helped. And actually having some colder weather than normal made it look totally dead. And I went out there the other day, and I saw the first figs of the season. They're not ready yet, but they're there. When I thought this thing was dead, I ultimately now know that it has moved into a new phase, a new era, a new age, that of life. For millennia, there was nothing but death. It just seemed too cold and it seemed too dry. 
And yet with the resurrection of Jesus, the first fruits of life from God had sprung forth, leading us to understand and know that there would be more life to come. We're in a new age. And you say, man, I would love to see a little more of that. That was like 2,000 years ago. Is there any way that I could get a taste of that kind of life now? You know where you see it these days? You see it in the lives of changed and transformed people. Like God has actually taken spiritually dead, selfish, sensual, stuff-oriented people, and he has made them Savior-loving and servants to one another. Sure, and I know that there are a lot of Christians who do bad things, and it's easy to point to all the terrible stuff that the church has done, but trying to discredit Christianity on account of the occasional sins of its people is like taking a picture of my street on Tuesday mornings when all the trash cans are out. That may be true in that moment, but that does not characterize the street through the week. Overall, God's people have been cleaned up They are different. New life has already come. A new era has dawned upon us. And he's saying this should cause you to have joy. This will cause you to have joy. This is the gospel, dear friends. I say this to any of you who who have never heard a clear definition of that before. A new world marked by joy in the blessing and approval of God has happened through Jesus God is now actually in those who call upon him, son, by faith alone. Jesus paid for the penalty. He rose again, giving us the promise of life. And we are right with him through faith alone, not our works. The new age has begun. And I'll say this to some of you who have yet to enter in. Will you, by faith, even today, Enjoy the new era, the new age that is being offered you in the Lord Jesus. I can hear the objections, I get them. If you're here today and you're not in Christ, you could say, you know what, some of the most miserable people that I know are Christians. Some of the most cantankerous and mean individuals out there claim the name of Christ. Um, I would only ask you, are they really Christians? I mean, just because they claim to be doesn't mean that they actually are. I'm telling you what the Bible says. The Bible says that those who enjoy the presence of Jesus will rejoice. If they're so dour and downcast all the time, if they're so mean and cantankerous, maybe they're not real Christians at all. And that can make some of us dour and cantankerous tending people. feel kind of weird or strange, like, well, Justin, well, what's wrong with me? Sometimes I think I believe in Jesus, and I'm not happy all the time. I'm totally like not in a Pollyanna frame of mind. Like, I think that world's terrible. It's going to hell in a handbasket. I'm pretty sad. My body's breaking down. There's more month than there is money. Like, I, I'm just not in a good spot right now. Hey, guess what? There are indeed times when Christians experience difficulty, but what Jesus is saying is that the normal disposition of life will be one of, and please hear this carefully, inner joy. It says it's in your heart. I joked around the other day, I told you that I have a face problem. My face is always like in a frowning mode or disposition. Some of you have the same problem. I see it every week. But that doesn't mean that, like, actually in my heart, all is well with my soul. Not neutral, but well. It is good. It is good. It is way better than the alternative. Happiness can be tested by the past, the present, and the future. Looking back, looking around, looking ahead. I look back at my life, and I see that everything that I've ever done that has offended God and hurt others has been forgiven by the blood of the Lord Jesus. I'm good. And I look around, and I see all the other stuff that people have that's more than what I got, and I'm totally cool with it because I know that everything will be better in a day to come. And I look ahead, not with any fear of the future, but absolute confidence that when I die or when Jesus returns, all will be well. 
and all have that confidence in the Lord Jesus. The new era has come. There's a second joy that's mentioned here, and that is the joy of answered prayer. Jesus' presence now, after his death and resurrection, provides us the joy of answered prayer. I won't even read verses 23 and 24 again at this moment. I'll do it in a second. But if this theme sounds familiar to you, like prayer in Jesus' name, Jesus answering our prayer, if this sounds familiar, like, hey, I think he preached this message a few weeks ago. Surprise, I did. But surprise, Jesus brought it up again, and therefore I will. Somebody gave me a feedback in the service review the other day, and they were like, I was hearing from some people that they thought that you had preached a message on the Holy Spirit already a few times by now. I was like, check, I did. <laughs> there's, there's five discourses on the Holy Spirit in the farewell discourse, and there's three different times where he talks about answered prayer. This is the third. But what's interesting is that the first time Jesus talks about, the first two times Jesus talks about answered prayer, he talks about it in the realm of productivity for him, bearing fruit and doing good works. He's like, hey, you're going to do greater works than me, and here's how you're going to do them. You're going to do them by praying, asking things in my name, God's going to give it to you. Hey, you're going to try to bear fruit for me, and here's how you're going to do it. You're going to pray and ask in my name, and I'm going to give it to you. It was all about productivity. This time, the prayer promise is applied not to productivity, but to pleasure pleasure. It's one thing for us to pray and get whatever we need just for the sake of getting stuff done for Jesus. It's something else for us to consider prayer being asked, answered for the sake of our own joy. I don't think we think of this one. Normally, we think of prayer as the great obligation, not the great opportunity. And here, Jesus presents it as a means by which you will even further enjoy him. Notice how when we read this promise again, he ties it to joy, not just to productivity. Now let's look at the text. In that day, verse 23, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Do you get what he's saying here? He's saying this will happen and it will make you happy. As you continue asking God for things, this present active imperative verb, like you just keep asking and asking and he'll keep answering and giving and it'll make you happy. Throughout this series, we have, uh, as we've come across these passages, likened uh, prayer to uh, cashing the company check. Do you remember that illustration, that metaphor? Using the company credit card. When we say praying in Jesus' name, we're not talking about tacking those few words to the end of your prayer, but we're actually saying you're doing it by Jesus and for Jesus. You know that it's Jesus' resources that enable you to get whatever it is that you want, and you're doing it for Jesus because you're a part of him, you want what he wants, and you'll ask for things in his name, just like you would a company check. You're doing it for the company, and you're spending the resources of the company. It's by and for. And so here, we're reminded that even though it may be the company check, spending money, especially somebody else's, is still really, really fun. Have you ever, I mean, so, these moments are so rare in life. Maybe you've never experienced it. I have only in small ways. But have you ever had somebody say to you, hey, look, spare no expense, just get whatever we need? Here's my, here's my credit card. That's a dangerous proposition. Spare no expense, get whatever you need, here's the credit card, and they actually mean it. Could you imagine? Buy whatever you need for your home, here's my card. Buy whatever you need for this church, here's my card. By whatever you need for the mission to be accomplished, here's my card. It's exactly what Jesus is saying. Spend it. 
I've fully satisfied things with the Father, and you now can get whatever you need for the mission by asking him in my name, and it'll make you happy. You'll love spending my money. As one rooted in Christ and longing for fruit for Christ, Jesus says that his presence after the resurrection secures heavenly credit for all that we need and playing a part in God's work to fill up our joy. I would say it this way, friends. Some of you do not enjoy the post-resurrection presence of Jesus, not only because you haven't reflected on the blessings of this new age, but some of you are not enjoying it because you do not avail yourself of the advantage of prayer. I put it this way, you, you live a Cinderella existence in a fairy godmother world. You work, you slave, you try, and yet you've been offered whatever it is that you need. We constantly go around telling ourselves and one another, the problem's too big, the sin is too deep, this endeavor is too hard, the issue is too complex, uh, the heart is too fixed. And so we work and we whine, but we never win because we do not pray. Have you ever noticed your tendency? I, I do this. Have you ever noticed your tendency to talk about how terrible it is and how you wish this could happen and how that thing just seems to be in the way and how what we really need is such and such? And you, you just vocalize it, you internalize it, or maybe you share it with another person who can do jack squat about it. And you don't turn it into prayer. You're missing an opportunity for great pleasure. I get the objections here too because somebody would say, look, man, I've been praying. <laughs> I've been, I prayed this one time for somebody to get saved and they still aren't saved. <laughs> There's two, two things, maybe three that I could discuss that would probably help regain some joy in this experience for you. One is I would warn you, have you actually prayed with the right timing? in mind. The right timing. To pray in Jesus' name is to pray in accordance with the way and time that He would have it done. The verb tense here is so important. Pray, keep praying, keep on praying so that you will receive. It is ongoing action. Jesus even gives other parables to talk about the importance of what the old King James called importunity in prayer. We don't ever use that word. Important, it's not the word. Importune. Importunity. Insistence. Remember that story about that guy that just kept knocking on the door asking for bread at night and the person's like, go away. <laughs> it's nighttime. And they finally just like give up and they say, okay, here you can have the bread. Jesus actually applies that parable, that illustration to his people and say, just keep praying. Keep praying, keep seeking, keep knocking. Like it isn't, all right, I doubt it in one time. It is you ongoingly are coming to God with this request. And here's the deal. It forces you into his presence in a greater way, which is where true joy ever is in the first place. That's what Paul said about his thorn in the flesh. He prayed three times that that thing would go away. And yet, what did he realize in the end? That God's grace was sufficient for him and that God's strength was being made perfect in his weakness. Just the regular going to God was providing joy for him. Make sure your timing's right, that you keep giving it to the Lord. Another thing we need to make sure of if we think that prayer really isn't producing the joy that's promised is that we need to ensure we have the right target. Not just the right timing, but the right target. He does say, pray in Jesus' name. You know what this assumes? You know what this whole deal assumes? It assumes the stuff that's back here in chapter 15 about you being planted in Jesus like a grapevine. That you're rooted in Him. That you get your life from Him, and your life is to see His life produced in fruit in others. 
This isn't assuming the context of the American dream and then prayer being parachuted in as a special resource for you to get whatever you want. It is assuming that Christ has changed your wants. And so sometimes we're not getting what we're supposedly asking for in Jesus' name because it's not actually in accord with Jesus' plan. How many of you have ever prayed for something that you were glad that God didn't say yes to it? Oh, 10 of you. I, I remember being 16, praying that God would let me marry a girl's name who shall remain unnamed. <laughs> like, I honestly prayed that. I was like, oh, this is, she's the one. God, make this happen. Whew, man, Come to my house sometime. I have to tell you the story how that worked out because I am so glad that it didn't happen. I was talking to a young man this week who said after a particular uh, breakup or something, he prayed that God would take away his desire to be married forever. He was so frustrated. And I told him, weren't you glad he took that desire away? (laughs) He didn't answer that prayer. We've all prayed some really dumb things sometimes. And God in his kindness doesn't answer because it's not actually in accordance with his will. It takes more time to realize that our target is off. So you've got the timing piece, but you also have the target piece. But anything that we need for the advance of the mission to see God more sad, I mean, uh, joyfully enjoyed by other people, the church built, our lives growing in grace and godliness... He answers that. And then I think there's one final reason why we we don't connect the pleasure with the promise of prayer, and that is this. uh, We forget history. (laughs) God has answered so many prayers for us, and we just, like, move on. We're like stinking kids at Christmas time. You unwrap the gift. You don't even care who it's from. You just know that you've got the thing. And then the mom's like, well, did you thank so-and-so? Well, I don't even know who it was from. And then you start digging through the paper, and you're trying to figure out who it is. I mean, like, we're just about the thing. We're like little kids. We just get what we want, and we move right on. God's probably answered hundreds of prayers in your life, and you just thought, oh, well, that was lucky. That turned out good. And you didn't acknowledge that it ultimately came from God's good hand. It's weird to me that when something goes wrong, we blame God, and when something goes right, we think we had a good day. It just worked out. We probably should do a better job at recalling the history of God's faithfulness. That's why the Psalms calls us over and over again to remember and commemorate His faithfulness. Some even write down answers to prayer in a journal and review them on a regular basis. The point is, friends, that prayer is not your great obligation. It is your great opportunity to increase joy. He says, I'm doing this, I'm telling you this, so that your joy may be full. If your joy is not full, I wonder if you are availing yourself of the promise of prayer. And let me invite you to do that, not right now, but I want to help you. Because I realize that I'm not the only person in here that has prolonged seasons of battling in prayer, not just enjoying it. Personally, if you need help, I want to recommend a resource to you. It's 30 pages long. How cool would that be to read a book that's only 30 pages long? You can find it on Amazon. We have it here sometimes. I looked for it today. I couldn't find it. It's called Enjoying Your Prayer Life by Michael Reeves. It's a great little book. You can get it on Kindle. You could have it by lunchtime. You could read it by lunchtime. Friends, if you struggle with this, it's a big deal because this is supposed to be a source of joy. Maybe a resource like that could be of help to you. If you don't want to read a book, fine. Enlist the help of a trusted, godly individual in the fellowship, somebody you know that enjoys prayer, maybe a pastor, an elder, I would encourage you to do this. Join in on prayer to see how pleasurable it can be. 
Yes, there's private times to pray, but there are a whole like buffet of prayer opportunities at this particular church, and we have never, to the best of my knowledge, guilted anybody into coming ever. And so what I'm about to say to this full room is not guilt. It is totally grace. Here's the deal. Before we meet here on Sunday mornings, we pray back there. It's like the highlight of my week. It's an awesome opportunity to enter into the prayers of other people, other saints. I would encourage you to avail yourself of that. It's the best kept secret at Faith Bible Church that we pray together at 9 o'clock on Sundays before the service starts. And we're not going to pressure you into prayer. Even some men in our church get together monthly and pray at a shop down the street. There's prayer teams for missionaries. Did you know that we've already prayed multiple times in the service today? And you probably didn't even realize it. Sometimes our liturgy, our rhythms, like we, they become invisible to us. Like when I was praying earlier, that was an invitation for you to pray together with me as a church. When we sang, when we sang the song right before the message, that was a prayer. It just had a, a song tune to it. Like, we're praying in, in this gathering together. And let me just open up one more opportunity for you to pray. When you talk to people after church and they tell you, man, I'm really going through such and such, hey, you know what a great thing to do is? Paul's right there and pray with them then. It's a real simple move. If appropriate, put your hand on their shoulder and say, let me pray with you right now. Instead of saying, I'll pray about that and never praying about it. Just go ahead and do it now. It's, it's not a guilt thing. It's a grace thing. It's an opportunity for you to have joy. I don't think I'll ever forget when Joel Osteen's book, Your Best Life Now, came out. Um. I mean, it took the American reading world by storm. It was 2004. It's hard to believe. It's almost been 20 years since that thing came out. It uh, climbed number one on the New York Times bestseller list. It stayed on the bestseller list for two years. Sold more than 8 million copies. And rightly, totally in agreement here, conservative Christian pastors like John MacArthur blasted it for its emphasis upon self-help and material wealth. Uh, I mean, its message at its core flies in the face of a biblical gospel. The gospel is not about us cleaning ourselves up or speaking truth to ourselves or somehow tricking our minds into thinking that we can like, generate more income or happiness or whatever. And the gospel is also not promising material wealth in this life. It promises wealth in the life to come, wealth spiritually in the here and now. So I agree with uh, the critiques. We, uh, we rightly stand against perversions of the gospel like Osteen's. But at the same time, is it not possible that we've forgotten that the gospel still means good news? Like sometimes in our desire to talk about how um, the Christian life isn't that great, we kind of make it sound like it's not that great. <laughs> Contra Osteen and our suspicion of enjoyment, I came across a different book this week. Someone literally dropped it in my mailbox on Sunday afternoon. Also a short book. By this um, Anglican guy named J.C. Ryle. If you've never heard of him, he was a pastor in the late 1800s England. He's like a godly Puritan that's really easy to understand. The title of the book, Happiness. Probably the best book I've ever read on the subject. You can find it online for free. It's public domain. J.C. Ryle, Happiness, and it's very easy to understand. The reason I'm sharing this with you is because I want you to understand that even with great, faithful, godly men, this theme of happiness and joy has been a mainstay. I don't want you to hear terms like, enjoy Jesus and think, uh-oh, he's been watching TBN. Like, you should actually be thinking like, yeah, this, is, this makes sense. This is at the core of the Christian faith. It isn't just J.C. Ryle. 
Guys like Jonathan Edwards, if you've ever heard him, he was huge on people's pleasures and affections being oriented toward God. Another popular author that many read today is John Piper, or I mentioned Michael Reeves earlier. Uh, Friends, it's not just truth or good works, but it's also joy. We are a gospel people. I love the way that William Tyndale, the pioneer translator of the Bible into English, defined the gospel back in 1525. This is, I'm about to end, don't worry. 1525, Tyndale is, is writing this kind of like lexicon to help people explain like what he means by certain terms in his translation, and he puts in the word gospel that we're so used to, and listen to how he defines gospel. A Greek word signifying good, merry, glad, and joyful news that makes a man's heart glad and makes him sing, dance, and leap for joy. That's a definition. When was the last time you received news that made your heart glad to the point that you sang, danced, like actually moved your feet, danced, or leapt for joy? As I survey the faces on the room, it seems like it was a long time ago. (laughs) And yet, this is what we herald every week. I'm not, again, I'm not telling you that you have to display it to the same degree that you display other things. Part of the reason why we sometimes struggle to display the joy of the gospel is because of this thing called homeostasis. Your body does it, but your mind does it too. You ever, like, you go outside and you're going to be like burning up hot, and then you're going to step into the air conditioning at your house and you're like, oh man, this feels so good. But then like three minutes later, it doesn't feel good anymore. It just feels normal. Your body just adjusts to things. You know your mind does that too? Uh, that baby that calls so much joy at the moment of birth, <laughs> uh, that joy kind of like gets internalized, and then you can start to feel some other things about that child, depending on how it's acting. <laughs> There's a normalization process that takes place in the mind as well. I don't want anybody walking out of here today who's in Christ thinking, oh my goodness, I don't feel like I just ate a ton of, you know, like uh, pixie sticks. Therefore, I am not on fire for Jesus. But I am trying to say that there should be a normal joy that should characterize our life internally. And even though moments of duress may come, even though seasons of depression may come, the default is to be really satisfied in Jesus. Why? Because he brought on the new era. And through him, we can have answers to our prayers. It is my desire that every one of us in this room would experience that regularly. And so I'm going to pray for that. In Jesus' name. And then we're going to praise him for that with a final song reflecting on the goodness of Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I come to you in Jesus' name asking for joy on behalf of your people. I know that the joy is there. You promised it. It's already there. And yet I'm asking for the experience of it to regularly mark their lives. And if now is an intense moment of pain in another direction, if now it seems that they can only enjoy you by faith, if not by feeling, Lord, assure them that the new era has begun and they have everything that they need as they go to the Father in your name. Lord, mark this congregation, these people, by that kind of joy regularly. That good news about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection 
that makes one sing or even dance. For those who are here who have no idea about this life-giving joy that can come only from faith in Jesus, give them hearts to believe even today. I pray they would turn from their sin and unbelief and that they would trust in Jesus even now, experiencing or that new life that comes from being seen by Him. Lord, draw them in today. Even enable our praise in song now. In Jesus' name, amen.